The week we have just come through, the seven days leading up to Easter Sunday, is justifiably called the most important week on the Christian calendar. Our Catholic friends call it Holy Week, and many other friends across the denominations refer to it as Passion Week. And we don't have any issue with either title because this week commemorates a week of suffering in the life of Jesus who was the Holy Lamb of God. But probably the more biblical title is Passion Week since it comes from the scripture itself, Acts chapter 1 and verse 3. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, there's where it comes from, by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. That's why we call it Passion Week. The Greek word here is pasco, which means to experience physical or mental or spiritual suffering. And Jesus prophesied his suffering many, many times. Now, despite some non-biblical formalism that seems to creep into the celebrations of this week, at least our Catholic and our denominational friends pause to honor this week of Jesus' passion and I commend them for that. Most of the world continues on with their busyness, scarcely aware that anything special should be commemorated, except for the Easter bunny and chocolate shopping, which you can do that any day of the year. I hope you've paused a time or two this week, leading up to Easter, to think about what Jesus did for you and for me, for all of us, for the entire world. Because everything he went through, he went through for you and for me. And it was a lot that he went through because a lot can happen in seven days. Because we have four gospel accounts of these events, each with a different audience and a different emphasis, because we have many relevant Jewish Passover customs all converging behind the scenes, Because we have to deal with the Jewish day itself, which is different than our day. Their day starts at 6 p.m. in the evening. And because we have 2,000 years of church history and tradition to sort through, there are some differences among theologians as to what happened when on which day of Passion Week. The most significant debate is around the timing of Jesus' death and burial. Now, we know from the scripture that he was in the grave, quote, for three days and three nights. And we know that, first of all, because he said it would happen. As Jonah was in, was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. We know because Jesus said it would happen. We also know because the angel at his tomb said it would happen. He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was in Galilee saying, the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. So we know it's three days and three nights because Jesus said it would happen. The angel at his tomb said it had happened. We also know because there were two disciples on the road to Emmaus 
and they tell us that they were expecting it to happen. Here's what they said. We trusted that it had been he which should have, been, should have redeemed Israel. Beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. So they were expecting it to happen. And one final reason we know it's three days and three nights. Jesus said it would happen. The angel at his tomb said it had happened. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus had been expecting it to happen. And also, most importantly, because it was God's eternal plan that it should happen. He said unto them, thus it is written, thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. But if you think about it for a moment, you know this. Good Friday afternoon to Easter Sunday morning is not three days and three nights on our calendar. However, the Jews often counted part of a day as a whole day, no matter how small that part was. So it, it could have happened that way. Part of Friday, all day Saturday, a little part of Sunday, three days and three nights, because that was their expression. Or some theologians believe there was an extra annual Sabbath. There was a weekly Sabbath, but they had feast days and festivals, and every once in a while, an annual Sabbath got put somewhere in a week, and some theologians believe that on this particular week, not only Friday was the Sabbath, but also Thursday, and so that would explain the extra day and night. Or it may have been something else entirely. We're not sure. But regardless, what I would like to say is the important thing is not when Jesus did this. It is that Jesus did this, giving his life a ransom for our sin. The week, Passion Week, this week that we've lived through, commemorated. It begins with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, one week before Easter. And this is recorded in all four Gospels. To the Jews, what we now call Passion Week was their feast of Passover. They gathered from all over Israel to celebrate their deliverance from bondage in Egypt. They always were hoping and praying that this might be the year and this might be the Passover, that another Messiah would come, a courageous leader like Moses or Joshua or King David that would deliver them from bondage under the Roman Empire. And you know this, we referred to it last weekend. The multitudes that went before and that followed as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, they say, Hosanna, to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Three of the gospel accounts quote the word that was shouted that day. Hosanna. And you'll remember from last week that this comes from a Hebrew phrase. Hoshiana. It is found only one place in the entire Old Testament in Psalm 118 verse 25. That's the only time it occurs in the scripture. And it used to mean in the Old Testament times, save please or save now. It's a cry to God for help. But if you look at that verse in the Psalms, that verse is sandwiched in between two other verses. It's immediately preceded by the words, this is the day which the Lord hath made. And it's immediately followed by the words, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. So it's like that prayer was answered almost as soon as it was prayed. So over the centuries, 
Hoshiana, or we would say Hosanna. It stopped being a cry for help, and it started being a cry of hope. It used to mean save us, please, but now it means salvation has come. And that's what the crowd was celebrating in Israel one week before what we call Easter Sunday. The Messiah is here. The Messiah has come. Hosanna, Hosanna, salvation has come. But what nobody in that crowd could have possibly known that day is that this would be the last week of Jesus' earthly life. The crucifixion is just a few days away, and even now the Sanhedrin is plotting to silence the Nazarene's voice forever. Jesus had come to Jerusalem despite the danger because there are some things he must say and some things he must do to fulfill prophecy and to purchase our salvation. The disciples' understanding of Jesus' last journey into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, can I just tell you, their understanding was a bit flawed. They saw him as a king moving in to take control. And he was doing that, but what they couldn't see was that his victory over sin and death and Satan would be through his own suffering and his own death on the cross. On that Sunday, when the crowds are gathered and when the children and the adults are singing and palm branches are being waved and everybody's shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, nobody could see it. This is surely Palm Sunday, the high point of Jesus' ministry. Surely, the disciples think, this is the moment that will turn everything around. Look how the crowds love him. Who could have dreamed in their worst nightmare that the crowd shouting Hosanna just a few days later would be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. But a lot can happen in seven days. Jesus has no home of his own. Scripture tells us that. So all that week, he and the disciples stayed in Bethany at the home of his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And every morning they get up and they make the short little journey back into Jerusalem to join the festivities of Passover week. There's something pretty much every day. On Monday, things immediately take a turn for the worse. Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he weeps over the city, he proceeds to the temple, and he is angered because the Jews have turned God's house into a marketplace, livestock auction, and currency exchange, all rolled into one. Now most people look at the passage of the cleansing of the temple and they say, well, see there, God doesn't like it when you mix religion and business. Well, I'm sure that's true but it's far from the whole picture. The real problem here isn't business in the church foyer. The real problem is lazy worshipers. Matthew 21, Jesus went into the temple of God and he cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple. He overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. See, what they're doing is they're selling sacrifices to people. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. It wasn't that the animals being sold in the temple were not the right kind of animal. Wasn't that at all. It was that the individual was supposed to bring their own animal to be sacrificed. 
And so this was a shortcut that cost them nothing except a little bit of money paid to whoever met them in the city. God had commanded that they were to raise the animal, ensure that it was out with, was without blemish, transport it the many miles to the temple, and then give their own animal to God as a sacrifice. You can imagine any of you that have pets at home, especially if you have what I would call exotic pets, i.e. not a dog or a cat. And if you've got any of those pets, here's what you know. Your kids can get attached to whatever animal happens to be living around your place. Can you imagine a mother and father, they have a little lamb that's in their backyard, in their field, and their kids get around that animal and they fall in love with it and they play it with it and they, they feed it. And then dad announces one day, well, we've got to go to Passover and we've got to take your lamb and we've got to take it to the city of Jerusalem, to the temple, and it's going to be killed. You can imagine what kind of trauma that would be. See, lazy worshipers would simply show up without doing any of the work necessary. They'd just pass some money to a priest because it was more convenient. It was supposed to cost something to worship. The sacrifice was supposed to be the best you had. You were supposed to feel the loss of it. You were supposed to work at it. You were supposed to be inconvenienced. And you were even supposed to wonder, why does God insist that I do this? Why does God ask for something that is so precious to me? But see, that's real worship. And so the tide has already started to turn. And no doubt the disciples are worried because... That tide of public opinion is a fickle thing. It's already beginning to turn against Jesus. Just yesterday, he was the hero of Jerusalem. And now today, he's public enemy number one, insulting everybody in the temple and making a big commotion. The Sanhedrin has always hated Jesus. But now, in this week that we call Passion Week, their wrath is reaching a fever pitch. If you had been there, you would have been able to feel a palpable tension in the streets. The crowds follow Jesus. Yes, they do. But the Pharisees detest him. And they are already, early in the week, beginning to put their evil plot into action behind the scenes with a little help from a devious disciple named Judas Iscariot. Nobody sees this coming. Nobody can even imagine that by the end of the week, Jesus will be writhing in agony on a cruel cross. But you see, a lot can happen in seven days. As they're traveling the next day, so now we're uh, in Tuesday, Jesus sees a barren fig tree along the road. And uh, he walks over to it. He looks for figs to eat. There are none. Even though this fig tree is just standing there, and Jesus curses the fig tree. That seems to be a pretty vindictive act until you stop to think about it. You can run your mind all the way back to the Garden of Eden and ask yourself, when Adam and Eve grasped in desperation for something to cover their nakedness, after sin entered the world, what did they reach for? And the answer is fig leaves. 
Here's what I believe was happening there. I don't believe that Jesus was doing some kind of vindictive curse on an innocent little fig tree when the scripture says the time of figs was not yet. He was God. He had created it that way. He had created it to bear figs in a season, not in another season. But I really believe that what was happening on that morning as Jesus and his disciples walked from Bethany into Jerusalem for the Tuesday of Passover week, you've got God robed in flesh standing in front of a tree that is a descendant of the tree that got mankind into trouble in the Garden of Eden. A lot of Jewish scholars believe that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was indeed a fig tree. So you got to picture this. Here's Jesus, God robed in flesh. He walks by this tree and he curses it because he is about ready to go into Jerusalem and give his life on a tree and reverse the curse that had bound humanity for thousands of years. Whenever the God-man speaks, the curse shrivels up, it withers, and it dies. I don't care what you've been into, where you've been, how you've messed up. I don't care what kind of addictions and bondage or even perversion you might have in your life. Let me tell you something. If you get a word from the God-man, if you get a word from Jesus, it can shrivel all of that and let you live a life of freedom. Now, it it seems that Jesus and his disciples, they call it the silent day of the week. It seems like they rest in Bethany on Wednesday. The Jews are making preparations for the Passover meal, which will be held after sunset on Thursday. No doubt Jesus and his friends are doing the same thing. None of them can imagine that this week of celebration is going to end in an unthinkable tragedy that will shake every one of them to the core. Somehow, that day they end up in the house of Simon the leper in Bethany. And it is there that a little woman brings an alabaster box of precious ointment. She comes up behind Jesus and she breaks that box, which would have cost her a year's wages, and she pours it on Jesus' head. And the disciples are indignant at the waste. Who does she think she is to waste all of that money? But Jesus said, no, you don't understand. She has just anointed me for my burial. She sees something that you haven't noticed yet. She sees something that you're not aware of yet. And let me tell you, wherever this gospel is preached, in the whole world, even 2,000 years later in a little city called Fredericton, New Brunswick, wherever the gospel will be preached, they'll be preaching this too. This woman... She has done whatever, what she's done, it'll be told as a memorial of her. Jesus is now anointed for burial, and the disciples have totally missed it. They were so focused on what a waste of money, they didn't realize that they were cruising very close to the end of Passion Week, the end of Passover Week, and it was going to end in tragedy. Sure enough, On Thursday, Jesus sends Peter and John to make preparations for their own Passover meal in Jerusalem. And by the time they gather after sunset on Thursday, the mood has turned somber. 
Jesus has been making more and more puzzling statements about his impending death. If you read early in the Gospel of John, he says, Mine hour is not yet come. Chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8. But now, he's declaring openly to them, The hour is come. Chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 17. The disciples are uneasy. They're tense. They don't understand what in the world is going on with Jesus. The one who laughed with children and the one who taught huge crowds and the one who was so popular, but now he keeps saying to them, the hour is coming. The hour is here. It's at that last supper that Jesus, God robed in flesh, he gets down on his knees and he washes their feet and then he makes even more strange statements about betrayal. He says, I'm going to be betrayed by a disciple. Judas Iscariot, I think he had just had enough. I think it got to him. And it's at this supper that Judas just jumps up and abruptly departs the supper and heads out into the night. None of the disciples know where he's going, but it just seems strange and odd. And their heads are spinning with questions by this time. And if you follow the disciples through the gospel, you already know who it is going to be that will break the silence, just kind of put his foot in his mouth and ask the question that everybody else is thinking. Of course, it's Peter. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, you're scaring us, Jesus. Where are you going? Why do you keep saying the hour is come? You're scaring us, Jesus. What was that deal at the temple? You had it so good on Sunday. They were shouting Hosanna and waving palm branches. Couldn't you have let us enjoy that for just a day or two before you blew it all apart at the temple? And now you're scaring us, Jesus. Where are you going? And Jesus said, Whither I go, you cannot follow me now. You cannot do what I'm about to do. You can't go where I'm about to go. You do not have the level of dedication in you to offer the sacrifice that I'm about to offer. You cannot follow me now. Watch this though. But thou shalt follow me afterwards. That's amazing. Jesus knows that without the power of the Holy Ghost, it will be impossible for his disciples to do what he has called them to do. They have to come to the very end of themselves. They have to run in terror. They have to fall flat on their face. They have to realize they cannot depend on their own power, but only on his power within them. So what Jesus said is true. Right now you can't follow me. But you will follow me afterward. Isn't it amazing that Peter gets a lot of criticism. Isn't it amazing that Peter, who just a few hours from this moment, he will deny the Lord in cowardice before one little servant girl at a campfire. He will deny Jesus. He's a coward just a few hours from now. But isn't it amazing that if you fast forward just a few days from that moment, Peter will be preaching 
about Jesus with boldness before a crowd of thousands in the streets of Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, that's what the Holy Ghost will do for you and for me. Right now, you can't follow me, but I am going to send you the comforter. I am going to send you my spirit, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And when you receive that spirit, you'll be able to follow me later, after. Isn't it amazing, our human nature? Have you ever noticed this about people? My goodness, we can talk tough when we're not in the situation. I'm going to tell her, I told him, I'm going to, they're, nowhere, they're, they're not within 50 miles of you. That's why you're talking so bold and so tough. And right now, sitting around the table, the disciples are talking very bold. But before this evening is over, every one of them, on that fateful Thursday night, they will run in terror. They will leave their beloved master to fend for himself. It's easy to brag about your boldness when you've never had it put to the test. But for them, the test was coming because a lot can happen in seven days. After the meal, meal Jesus took them one more time. They'd been there many times. He took them to one of his favorite places to pray, the Garden of Gethsemane. It's beautiful, even today. Those ancient, gnarled olive trees and you can look right over the wall at the eastern gate of Jerusalem. And Jesus takes them there. But these men, his men, his disciples, they can't even stay awake to pray with him one hour. That's so much for their boldness. So much for their declarations of loyalty. After trying to rouse them twice, Jesus just lets them sleep on. That is, until absolute chaos breaks out in that normally peaceful garden. And suddenly, everybody is running every which way, running from the Roman soldiers who have come to arrest the Nazarene. Judas has betrayed him, and now Jesus is being arrested. He has done nothing wrong. All he has done is loved people and ministered to people. But the Sanhedrin is so jealous of his popularity that they break their own rules as they rush to orchestrate his execution. After that arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's taken to the palace of Caiaphas the high priest. He's put in an underground cell. I've had the privilege of being there. It's still underground. Now there are stone stairs cut into the wall so you can walk down there. Back then it was just a hole in the stone floor above and they would throw the prisoner unceremoniously into that cell. That is almost undoubtedly the cell where Jesus spent that night in between being dragged out to go to one trial after another, after another, after another. I was reading through some of this earlier today and it came back so vividly to my memory. Um, used to go with Brother Stone King to uh, the wonderful country of Israel and we enjoyed it so very much. I've been there several times. But before I went to help him with music, 
uh, Ruth Ann Kerr, one of our lady evangelists from down in the States, New Orleans actually, she went with him. And Ruth Ann told me this. She said, we were down in that cell underground. She said, that day I was lugging around this heavy accordion to play music for the tour. And I was lugging it around all day and I was so tired and my head was pounding. And she said, we were standing in that cell under the floor of the palace of Caiaphas the high priest. What's ruins now? She said, I put my head back against that wall. And she said, oh Jesus, I am in such pain right now. She said, just like that, Raymond, the, the Holy Ghost spoke to me and said, I know I was here too. And I was in pain too. This week that we commemorate, I know you're busy. I know you've got jobs and children to raise and bills to pay and things to do. But thank God, once a year, we get to screech on the brakes of all the busyness and the madness of our world and say, this is important, what happened this week. This is important. After his arrest in the garden, Jesus is put through the mockery of six trials all through that night and into the next morning. Three before the Jewish courts of Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin, and three trials before the Roman courts of Pilate and Herod. It's ironic to me that the Roman courts find Jesus not guilty, but the Jewish courts found him guilty. Pontius Pilate declared, I find no fault in him. Been walking with Jesus for a few years now, like many, if not most of you. That is my declaration as well. I found incredible fault in myself. I have found fault in others. I found fault in situations that were not fair. But when I look at Jesus, I agree with that Roman governor. And I say, I find no fault in him. The Caiaphas, on the other hand, he declares Jesus to be guilty of blasphemy and worthy of death. There has never been a worse miscarriage of justice in our world for one man who was so innocent. It was a week of consequence. It was a week of anxiety. It was a week of destiny because a lot can happen in seven days. On Friday, after he could hardly stand from being dragged around on his feet all night in all those courtrooms, the disciples saw Jesus scourged with a whip until he could hardly stand under his own power. His skin was ripped off in huge, gaping patches. They saw the crown of thorns pressed into his scalp until his face was running with blood. They saw their Lord and Master slapped and punched and pummeled until his countenance was permanently marred. He seemed only a grotesque caricature of a man. His visage was marred more than anybody else you've ever seen. They had watched Jesus at a distance. They were engulfed, carried along with the angry mob, just trying to keep a low profile because they were scared for their very lives. 
And they watched Jesus drag through the streets of Jerusalem on that Friday. They watched him nailed to the cross, hoisted into the air, hanging naked and humiliated as he writhed in agony. They watched his labored breathing and his groans of pain, fully aware everybody knew it. Crucifixion was really death by suffocation because at some point the nails in your hands and in your feet, you had to keep pushing up on those causing excruciating agony just to get a gasp, a desperate gasp of air to fill your lungs. But at some point the pain became too intense and you just slumped over and you died. But not Jesus. He didn't die of suffocation. He didn't die of the nails. He didn't die of the wounds. He didn't die from blood loss. He dismissed his spirit because that wasn't a martyr or a murder victim. That was God manifest in flesh. But you've got to imagine the disciples on that day. Jesus cries out and there's no question that his voice is quavering. And he said, it is finished. But all they could hear in that moment is, I am finished. And he bowed his head and he died. They were there when a Roman soldier pierced Jesus' ribcage with a spear. One final injury that screamed the final verdict. He's dead. He's never coming back. He's gone. It's over. Go home. They were there when his unrecognizable mangled body was unfastened from the cross, laid on the cold ground to be wrapped for burial. They were in the grieving, weeping, mourning procession that carried Jesus to a borrowed tomb because he didn't have enough money to own his own tomb. They were there when the huge stone was rolled into place and a brutal Roman guard was stationed outside the tomb. And then, worst of all, they never saw it when the week began. But a lot can happen in seven days. They were there when they had to take that long, lonely, mournful, tearful walk home to a life that no longer existed. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've had weeks like that. Maybe you've had weeks that started out with great promise and great joy. But isn't it true in the human condition that one phone call from a physician, one traffic accident on a highway, one diagnosis, one call from a son or daughter can turn everything upside down. And we think the week's going to start this way and continue. But brothers and sisters, a lot can happen in seven days. Now, Easter Sunday we celebrate today. What a beautiful day we've had. I've enjoyed every minute of everything. Easter Sunday is very easy in hindsight. It's, easier, it's easy to jump up behind a pulpit 2,000 years later and say, this is awesome. It's redemption's ultimate victory. It's beautiful. It's powerful. But it wasn't quite so clean and quite so pristine the first time around. The disciples were still weeping. Their eyes were still bloodshot. 
when they dragged themselves out of bed on that very first morning that we now call Easter. They weren't thinking about a resurrection. They weren't thinking about going to church. They weren't thinking about singing a joyful song. They weren't thinking about lifting their hands and declaring Jesus' ultimate victory. He was gone. They were still overwhelmed with the repercussions of their master's death. Now you can get up on your high holy horse and you can chide them for all their unbelief if you want to. And you can berate them because they didn't get it and they had no vision. And you can scold them because they should have hung around counting down outside the tomb to see the miracle. But see, you didn't go through the agony that they went through. You weren't there when he died. To them, it blew apart everything that they'd ever known and everything that gave them reason to live. And maybe you've been there because a lot can happen in seven days. And sometimes nobody else seems to understand. Other people can be quite judgmental. Other people can offer a whole lot of advice. Other people can look with condemnation upon you because you messed up. You made a mistake. You fumbled the ball. Your family's in chaos. Your finances are non-existent. I don't know what it is for you. But here's what I do know in life. A lot can happen in just one week. You can come to church on one Sunday and it be on the top of the mountain and you're feeling victorious. And by the time you drag yourself back here next Sunday, a lot can happen in just a week. A lot can happen in just seven days. And that's what happened with them. But early on that Sunday morning, while it was still dark, in that darkened garden, there was a flurry of activity outside the garden tomb. By the time a few of the disciples got there, they were not coming to celebrate Easter. They were coming to see if somebody would take pity on them and let them wrap Jesus' body because it had been so rushed. They hadn't prepared him properly for burial. They're not expecting a triumph. They're not expecting a miracle. They're not expecting anything of the kind. They've just dragged themselves out of bed with their hearts breaking and their eyes flooded with tears and their eyes swollen and they've made their way to that garden where the dearest thing that they've ever known is now dead, laying on a stone slab in grave clothes behind a rock. But when they get there, the guards aren't at their post. The stone has been rolled away, and they can't even figure out how that happened. And there is no body inside that tomb. Mary Magdalene arrived first, according to Matthew. But then Peter and John and some of the others, they came running. The first thought is, not a miracle, not an Easter drama, not a beautiful victorious song. Their first thought is, somebody's playing one more cruel joke. Somebody has stolen the body of our precious Lord and Master. As if to add one final indignity to all the indignity he suffered. They think somebody's stolen the body. Finally, Peter and John go in the tomb. They look around. And then the Bible simply says they headed home. And they left Mary standing there to weep alone. And she's weeping. 
if you've been around me for more than one Easter, you know I love this scripture. John records it in John 20. It's amazing. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down, and she looked into the sepulcher, and she seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. That, brothers and sisters, is a miraculous, triumphant verse. I've been there several times. I know what that tomb looks like, and I do believe it's the place. The garden tomb owned by the British uh, outside of the north wall of Jerusalem. I believe that's the place. Everything fits. There's a wine press nearby. There's a beautiful garden there. And just up over the hill is that rock that looks so much like a skull that it's eerie. And they call it the place of the skull. So I believe that tomb that we celebrate in Jerusalem, that it's the real place. I've poked my head in there more times than once. And you go in, you go straight ahead, and there's this little weeping chamber where people would gather. But then over to the right, there's this little burial chamber. They've got it sealed off now because people kept trying to chip pieces of rock out of it. And, and you can look through the grate, through the gate rather, and, and you can see these two beds laying there. One bed looks like, and this is archaeology talking, I wouldn't know this, but they say one bed was never used. And they say the other bed was used hurriedly. Jesus must have been tall because at one end of that stone slab, they had hollowed out a little piece. You can still see it. A little piece because they wouldn't put him with his knees bent. So they quickly hollowed out a piece. It's not nice and straight like everything else in the tomb. Jesus was probably tall. And... Uh, that's where Mary was looking on that Easter Sunday morning. She looks in the tomb, and the, 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 the slab that you see that's straight ahead, that's the slab that Jesus would have been laid on. And the Bible says that she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the foot, on that slab where Jesus had lain. And that is the most beautiful picture. She saw one angel at the head, and one angel at the foot, standing guard over the body of Jesus. The reason Jesus could come out of the tomb on Easter Sunday morning, you remember where two angels face each other over a flat slab? The Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> That's why Jesus could come out of that tomb on Easter Sunday morning, is because it was the Shekinah presence of Almighty God that had laid there in that body in that tomb. In that tomb on Easter Sunday morning, Mary saw the most familiar silhouette in all of Judaism. It's amazing to me. I have just one last scripture for you. Because let me tell you, a lot can happen in seven days. If any week in the history of the world shows us that a lot can happen in seven days, it's this week. It's Holy Week. It's Passion Week. Seven days. It's like a roller coaster. Hosanna, Hosanna, everybody loves him. The next day it's like casting stuff out of the temple and, and overturning tables and everybody hates him and, and there's plots behind the scenes and Judas is betraying him and the disciples have questions and they're trying to be bold but they're scared out of their wits. It is one more roller coaster this week that we call Passion Week. A lot can happen in seven days. And we've commemorated that week and we've commemorated Easter Sunday all day today and I'm so glad that we pause once a year to do that. 
But I came to this little service tonight to say that a lot can happen in seven days in your life. A lot of things can unfold. Some of them can be really great. Some of them can be so joyous. Some of them can be heart-wrenching and mind-boggling. It's amazing what can happen to a human heart in just one week. But the same way that Passion Week went up and down and in and out and back and forth, and it was terrifying for the disciples. By the time they got to Easter Sunday morning, they realized that it had all been in the plan of God and they could trust him with the rest of their lives. Jesus had told them right. You can't follow me right now, but you will follow me afterward. Those people, when they got the Holy Ghost, they were as bold as a lion. They never stopped witnessing until each one of them drew their dying breath, most of them as martyrs. The Bible tells me, if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead, if it dwells in you, if that same Shekinah presence of God that lifted that body out of death and allowed Jesus to walk out of the tomb, they didn't roll the stone away to let him out. The angel rolled the stone away as a signal to everybody else. He is not here. He is risen. And if that same resurrection spirit can ever get inside of you, the same one that raised up Christ from the dead, he's going to quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Now I know we love to think about heaven, sing about heaven, and preach about heaven, but that's not talking about heaven. You have a quickening in you right now that can get you through the worst garbage that life throws at you. You have a quickening spirit in you right now by the power of the Holy Ghost that when your life flies apart, Jesus can keep you pulled together. You have a quickening in your life right now that no matter what the devil tries to do against you, he can't do anything against you because God God is for you. And like he did 2,000 years ago, he can take a week that is treacherous and traumatic and he can turn it around until we're celebrating what happened 2,000 years later. What do you think a God like that could do with your situation? That was redemption. That was eternity consequential. What do you think God could do with your situation? And I'm not trying to be insulting or trite. But your situation is pretty tiny compared to Jesus purchasing eternal redemption. So if he could do that back then... I stand here tonight on the authority of the word of God and say that by the time you get back to church next Sunday, you could be walking in victory. By the time you get back to church next Sunday, everything could have turned around. By the time you get back to church next Sunday, your kids could be here praying in the Holy Ghost. By the time you get back to church next Sunday, you could be healed by the delivering power of Jesus Christ. A lot can happen in seven days. Lift up your hands. I'm totally finished. Just lift up your hands. Lift up your voice. Jesus is here among us. Jesus is here to touch you. Jesus is here to heal you. 
Jesus is here to minister to you. This is the consequence of Easter. This is why we still celebrate because if that same spirit that raised him from the dead, if it gets a hold of you, if it gets in you, if it lives in you, it changes everything for you. That's why we're still celebrating. Oh my. Oh my. Wherever you are, seated or standing, would you lift both of your hands to the heavens and would you just begin to worship? The touch of the Holy Ghost is demonstrably in this room right now. I speak to someone with a hopeless situation. I speak to someone with a depressing diagnosis. I speak to someone with rebellious family members. I speak to someone with hurt in your heart and confusion in your mind. I speak to someone with sickness in your body. That same spirit is here. It's resurrection power. It's the resurrection spirit. Oh my. Would you join me in here and out in the lobby? Would you stand to your feet? Just let your hands keep going. Let's, let's crown this day with great praise and great worship to Jesus because there's healing in that praise. There's deliverance in that praise. The miraculous flows in that praise. I know you got a mask on. I understand that. But would you lift up your voice to compensate? Let it be as though the mask wasn't even there. Lift up your voice in the presence of Almighty God. Oh, don't stop worshiping. Jesus is walking these aisles. Don't stop worshiping. Jesus is touching hearts. <laughs> oh my I want to do a couple of things really quick I'm not going to keep you would you just lower your hand and if you have a physical situation a sickness some kind of disability some kind of infirmity in your body I'd like you to lift your hand right now all over this room and out in the lobby if you would. Now, CCC, it's just us. But if you see somebody near you with a hand lifted high, first of all, if you're in their bubble, would you just reach over and put your hand on them and we're going to pray. If you're not, would you extend your hand toward them and we're going to pray. In the name of Jesus. Lord God, by your stripes, we are healed.
Peter said it years later, with his stripes, you were healed. It's already declared. (laughs) It's already purchased. It's already available. I speak healing into the lives and minds and bodies of the people in this room and in the lobby right now. In the name of Jesus, let healing flow. Let healing flow. As your blood flowed down the cross, let it flow here tonight. As your blood hit the soil of that hillside in Jerusalem, let your blood touch the lives and the minds and the hearts of people here right now. Yes, 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 yes. When you're walking through something, just like the disciples, it's the biggest thing in the world to you. I know that. So I'm not diminishing anything. But can I tell you, there are people here that have, they'd gladly trade what they're going through for a sickness. Because with them, it's a loved one that walked out, slammed the door, said, I'm not coming back. I don't love Jesus. I'm not going back to church. And like those disciples in that week, their heart has been broken afresh in this week. I want to pray for those people right now. I wouldn't embarrass anybody for the world. But if that's you, I I, I would appreciate it if you just lift up your hand right now. I'm not embarrassing you. I'm not singling you out. There's a whole host of people like that in this room. Again, if you see somebody with their hand lifted, would you either touch them on the shoulder or would you lift your hand toward them? This is a really important prayer. Jesus died so the lost could be found. Jesus died so the sinner could be redeemed. Are you ready to pray, CCC? At the beginning of a, at the ending of a wonderful Easter Sunday, are you ready to pray one more time? This is where the rubber meets the road. If the same spirit that raised him from the dead, if it gets among us, miracles will happen. Miracles will happen. You ready? Lift your hand towards somebody that's got their hand lifted. And I want you to pray out loud with fervency, out loud with authority, out loud with a little bit of volume. Pray for backsliders to come home. Pray for the lost to be found. Pray for families to be reunited, serving Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Heal the broken heart of that mother and that father. They've prayed so valiantly and so tirelessly, but they're exhausted spiritually. Jesus, infuse them with Holy Ghost power tonight. Lord Jesus, I pray for those backsliders that right now they're not interested. Right now, they're far gone. Right now, the only thing that they have toward the church is 
disgust. But Jesus, that's what happened with the crowds that week toward you. And yet you overcame. You rose from the dead. I'm asking Jesus that you resurrect some marriages from the dead. I'm asking that you resurrect some teenagers from the dead. I'm asking that you resurrect some siblings and some parents from the dead. I'm asking that you resurrect some families from the dead. Yes, Jesus. Oh, there is a powerful spirit of prayer. If I could get you to just do that for about another two minutes, I think we'll be able to carry on. But there's a liberty flowing in this room right now. There's a liberty to pray, but there, where there's a liberty to pray, there's a liberty for supernatural deliverance. That's what's there. Oh my. Yes. Yes. You walk 